y'all, and welcome to Feasting on Truth. I'm Erin Warren, and we are studying the tabernacle in a study called To Dwell in Our Midst. Yes, it's a study of the tabernacle, but also how it points us to Jesus. You can find more information about this study as well as other Feasting on Truth studies on my website at feastingontruth.com slash Bible study. Today, we move across to the opposite side of the holy place to the table of shoe bread. And I'll admit, y'all, I went a little deep this week, but as I was studying, I was just so struck by the communion that we get to experience with God because of Jesus. The fact that we are invited in to his presence, we get to experience a better bread, a better covenant, a better communion, and a better rest. Here is the table of shoe bread. Welcome to week five of To Dwell in Our Midst. It is a study of the tabernacle and how it points us to Jesus. Before we get to tonight's lesson, I want to give us our quick review every week. So we um, have seen that the tabernacle, um, God gives this charge to Moses to build him a tabernacle that he may dwell in our midst. And we saw this thread of what it looked like to dwell with his people um, from Genesis to Revelation, that being the desire of God. And that's going to play very heavily into um, this lesson. So we started with um, the tabernacle itself and the plans and the dimensions and how it um, they got all of the materials for this beautiful tent. Um, and then we studied the bronze altar, which is where the blood was spilled and sacrifice made to atone for and cover the cost of the sin. Jesus did this by for us by spilling his blood cross. The bronze basin reflects the stain of sin, helps the priests know where to wash it off. It makes them clean so that they could enter the holy place. Jesus did that, does this by washing us and cleansing us through his word. And then we entered last week into the holy place, which is the inner tent of the tabernacle. Um, and the first piece of furniture that we encountered was the golden lampstand. It bathed the entire holy place in light. It stood as a tree of life, shattering the darkness, pointing us to the true light that would one day bring the light of life to his people. And we had this phrase, because God, where God dwells, there is light. And because he dwells with us, we do not walk in darkness. We are not children of darkness, but we are children of the day. And tonight we move across, directly across the holy place to the north side of the tent to um, what is called the table of shoe bread. That's the fancy word for it um, that many of the um, 17th, 18th, 19th century scholars use. Um, it's also called the table of the bread of the presence um, or the table of show bread. And the Hebrew word literally means bread of the face. So this is when it says bread of the presence, it is bread that is set before the presence of God. And I want us to lean in as we discuss this, because there is so much to be gleaned here. Um, and so much around Sabbath, around covenant, around community, and around rem uh, remembering. So 
We are going to start with our instructions in Exodus 25, starting in verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit shall be its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand width, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, its flagons and bowls which, uh, with which to pour the drink offerings and you shall make them of pure gold. You shall set them before the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And so we see again the instructions and the, um, the, the instructions and the construction in Exodus 37, how they line up completely. And we see the, again, our very detailed and deliberate God giving very specific dimensions and um, ways to make this piece of furniture. So the table itself, as I said, is directly opposite of the lampstand and it's on the north side of the tent. Um, it is um, two cubits by one cubit by one and a half. So that's roughly about three feet, a foot and a half, two and a quarter feet. Um, it's made of acacia wood, again, the, a very hard, durable wood, but that was lightweight and overlaid with not just any gold, but pure gold. We see this again, pointing to the purity and the holiness of God, his detail and his specific plan that he would provide the right type of plan, um, dimensions, and blueprints in order to make this that would be portable. Um, it had a, a couple moldings around it and there's some different um, scholars kind of aren't sure exactly, but it, it appears there's a, rim, a molding around the top, um, around the rim and um, potentially around um, the base as well. Um, and then there are the utensils that come with it, the plates and dishes, bowls. If you have the ESV, it says flagons. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, if you look in other versions, it says pitchers. So um, that is for the, um, the drink offering and um, all of it is made of pure gold. Again, pointing to the purity, holiness, righteousness of God. So we actually find the instructions for the bread that will be placed on this table in Leviticus 24. So we are gonna start in verse five. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. And every Sabbath, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is 
for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual dew. So they take the finest flour and they bake 12 loaves and they are to place these 12 loaves of bread in two piles, six in each pile and place it before the Lord. And this is a memorial portion of the grain offering. So if you looked back at Leviticus 2, 1 through 10, um, you see that there was a portion of the memorial offering that the priest would keep as food for themselves. And so um, the fine flour that they would bring is um, would be um, part of that. There's also some scholars who believe that the fine flour would have been purchased with the money that was given um, as a due to the people. Um, but either way, it was um, from the people to the priests. Um, and we see that it was, because if we go back to that Leviticus 2 passage, we see that um, it was unleavened. And leavening in scripture represents sin. And so it being unleavened points to the purity of the bread. It is without blemish, just like we have placed everything else before the Lord that has been purified. Um, and so this is pure bread on a pure gold table. Okay, so I'm gonna ask y'all, stay with me here because I'm about to geek out on you. And it feels like I'm gonna give you a lot of disconnected information, but I promise it's all gonna make sense at the end. So go with me as we are gonna pull some threads that are throughout um, these passages that we just read. So one first that I want us to kind of set some context behind is the bread itself. So um, there is a show that I watched last year, I believe it was on Netflix. Um, it is based on a book called Cooked and it's a four part series and one of them centered around air. So I'm just gonna say, tell you, this is not a Christian based film, but I found it absolutely fascinating um, the first 16 minutes really focus on what bread would mean to the Middle East, in particular to their culture, um, stemming back thousands of years. Okay, so for us, bread is usually like it gets a bad rap. It's the extra thing you get while you're waiting for your real meal. But for them, bread was essential nourishment. Without bread, they would die. And in this show, what I found so interesting, he interviewed a food scientist and he said, if you gave someone a, bo a bottle of water and flour, they would die of starvation eventually. But if you mix the flour and water together, they could live indefinitely. It was enough to sustain your life. And so for them, Bread supplied the very essential nourishment they needed to survive and to, to live, to breathe, to um, have everything that they needed was mostly found in bread. And at this time, um, particularly in the institution of the tabernacle and their wandering in the wilderness, God is providing manna for them. Um, and so it is sustaining their life. Um, so I want us to keep that in mind as we are studying. Okay, so here we go. We see this measurement, two-tenths of an ephah of flour for each loaf. Now I have to admit, 
that the little math geek in me was like, that's not how you do a fraction. If it's two tenths, you have to reduce it. So it's actually one fifth. So I thought it was odd that they, they left it at two tenths of an ephah instead of reducing it. And I think this points so much to the deliberateness of God, because that word ephah, if you did the wilderness study, um, stories from the wilderness um, that I have, that word may be familiar to you. So in Exodus 16, when God is giving them manna, they were to go out each morning and collect an omer. And one omer was about one tenth of an ephah. We see that in Exodus 16:36. It makes a very specific note at the end of that story to say that one omer was one tenth of an ephah. So the amount that they gathered on days one through five was one omer. So it was one tenth of an ephah. But what happened on day six? They priests went out, well, the people went out, and when they brought their manna to the priests to be weighed, it was two omers. And they were shocked and they went back. So two omers would be two tenths of an ephah. And so this two tenths of an ephah is reminiscent of the double portion that God provided on day six. In Exodus 16, 23, when the priest came to him and said, we don't know what to do because today there's a double portion. Now, remember, if they had collected extra before, it would rot the next day. And so I think they were fearful that it was going to be too much. And this is what Moses said in 16:23. He said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Okay, so it's a double portion, which is what they would have collected on day six. And we see that the bread was to be set out. It was to be replaced every Sabbath. Um, if you have, I believe it's the NIV, it says Sabbath after Sabbath. It continues, it's to be a continual. Y'all, I read this one commentary that made me laugh because they described how they um, would carry the bread. Four of them would carry um, like almost, you know, like an Indiana Jones when he's replacing and it's like, you got to get it off real quick and put the other one on before it triggers the, the booby trap. It was, they, it, that was the scene they described because if they were to remove the bread before they, and then put the other one down, there would have been a half second where the bread was not continually before the Lord. And so I can just picture them sitting there with like their hands, like ready to go and like swiping the bread in every Sabbath. Okay. Um, <laughs> so every Sabbath, Sabbath to Sabbath, um, they are to replace this bread and it is eaten in the holy place by Aaron and his sons um, by the priests. And so remember the purpose of the grain offering, and this is why I think it is part of the grain offering. So the grain offering was worship and recognizing God's provision in their life. And so I think it was fitting that the priests would eat it on a day that was set aside for the same thing. It was a day to remember God's provision and a day to worship. And so, but I want us to go even deeper as we pull this thread. So Exodus 31, 12, 
Um, and the Lord said to Moses, so this is coming at the end of, he's gone through all of the construction in, um, instructions. So um, it's at the end of the instructions. So the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest holy to the Lord. And then again, um, whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. This is serious. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. In that six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. And on the seventh day, he was refreshed. Okay, so if you'll think back to the beginning of this study, we talked about how the tabernacle is a creation narrative. And we see seven times in Exodus 25 to 31, where we see, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, which, harks, uh, which would help them go back in their mind to God saying, let there be light. And God said, and the Lord said, and the seventh time is this passage here where he references Sabbath. Um, and he, it is a sign, it is a signal to you that the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who sanctifies us. God is the one who makes us holy. So the day that we recognize that is holy. Remember back to the institution of Passover here in the wilderness. It was a gift that um, at manna, uh, the days of collecting manna, it was a gift for them. They didn't have to go out that seventh day. They had been slaves. And it was a day where they could sit back and trust in God. They could trust that he was going to provide. They could trust that he would do what he said and that he would provide for them. And so we saw in our homework this week in Numbers 1 and again in Deuteronomy 10 that God is literally doing this for the priests. They um, do not receive an inheritance of land, but because God calls them to be his intermediaries, he is providing food for them. Um, this bread is a reminder that they can trust Yahweh, the creator of the universe, to do what he says. And as we've seen with each furnishing, there's a physical accomplishment. So physically, it provided food for the priest, but there's also a spiritual representation. And so I want us to pull that thread a little bit more as we look at the word covenant. So we see that in both the Exodus 31 passage and in um, the Leviticus passage that this is a covenant forever. Um, so I want us to kind of define a covenant, um, because that's one of those words that we tend to sometimes um, uh, think, okay, it's just a promise, but it's so much deeper than that. Um, it is a binding agreement. This is from Merriam-Webster. It's a usually formal, solemn, and binding 
agreement. It is a written agreement or promise, usually under a seal, that's important, two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. So typically there's an action that takes place that there is a seal on it and it is a solemn binding agreement. And we see um, that there's a command in Leviticus 24, nine, that, that Sabbath after Sabbath on behalf of the Israelites, they will do this as a lasting covenant. It is a seal of a covenant. It was customary for them in this day to seal a covenant with a meal together. And we see precedent for that in Exodus 24, 11. This is where God has made, come down and made the covenant with his people in Exodus 19, four through six, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. All For all the earth is mine and you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then he, he in this, um, almost like a Jewish wedding ceremony, has a covenant, um, uh, relays to them what his covenant is in the Ten Commandments. And the priests and the um, people um, in Exodus 24 agree to this covenant. And then Exodus 24, uh, verse 11 says, they beheld God and ate and drank. So they sealed this covenant out Mount Sinai to be God's people with a meal. And so this, every Sabbath, when the Aaron and his sons, when the priest would eat of the table of the shoe bread, of the show bread, of the bread of the presence, it was a remind, it was a time for them to remember the covenant that they had made with God. And they did so on behalf of the people. Um, it was a covenant meal made to help them remember his character. And so when we turn to John 6, um, your study on uh, focused on John 6, 22 through 71. But as we see um, in the context that this conversation that we read takes place the day after the feeding of the 5,000. So if you'll remember five loaves, two fishes, two fishes, five fish, no, five loaves, two fishes. That's right. Um, Jesus disperses it to 5,000 men. So most likely it was even more than that. Everyone ate their fill. There's 12 baskets left over. The next day, Jesus goes to the other side of the lake. And um, many of the people that were there wake up the next day and go, well, where'd that guy go? So they follow him to the other side of the lake and um, they begin questioning Jesus. And in verse 26, Jesus says that the people were seeking him, not because of the signs that they saw, but because they ate their fill of loaves. They came to him because they were hungry. Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you this bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread always. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jumping down to 47, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This is the bread of my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. The people came wanting bread for their stomachs. They wanted earthly satisfaction. But Jesus said, that's not what I came here for. I came here to offer you eternal sustainment. He is the bread of life. Through him, we find eternal life. Remember that context, keeping it in mind. Bread meant essential nourishment, essential for life. Jesus is essential for life. And there's a subtlety that we may miss in English, even though it is two different words. But when the Israelites spoke, did you notice they used the word manna? They said um, manna, God sent us manna. They actually said Moses sent us manna from heaven. And manna was only for the Jewish people. And Jesus responds to them. He uses the Hebrew word artos, which is the word for bread. Bread was for everyone. Jesus didn't come to just be the sustainment for the Jews. He came to be the bread of life for the entire world. His bread we get to rest in because it is eaten one time. We eat of the bread of life. We accept Jesus as our way maker, as the one who opened the way for us to have relationship with God, to be our savior one time. And we are satisfied for eternity. They ate bread yesterday and they were back asking for more bread. When we eat of the bread of life, we will never be hungry. He is the bread that endures forever and for everyone. And he gives his life so that by death and believing in him and following him, that the eternal hunger of our souls might be um, sustained and satisfied for eternity. He is the better bread. And he offers us a better covenant. Remember our passage in Hebrews 7 and Hebrew 8. He's a better hope. Hebrews 8, 6, and 7, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for the second. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to um, quote a prophecy from Jeremiah 31, 34, where he says, um, God says that he is going to establish a new covenant. Um, he will put their law in their minds and write it on their hearts and he will be their God and they shall be his people. 
And we see that promise, that covenant fulfilled in Jesus. He is the new covenant. He is the better covenant. And we are able to partake of the bread of life because his bread is for everyone. He is the better bread, just as he made the covenant in Exodus 19 with those people, with the Jewish people to be his holy people. He makes a new covenant with us to be his holy people. We see that in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race of royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He is a better bread, a better covenant, and he gives us a better reminder. God gave us a way to remember this lasting covenant, and he did it in the context of community. One of the things I found so interesting is that Aaron and his sons would eat this bread together. They didn't eat it alone. They ate it in the context of togetherness and community. And in Luke 22, in the upper room at Passover, we see Jesus give us a way to remember what he was doing. Verse 19 and 20, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which I have given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this is the cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We break bread to remember that his body was broken for us. And we break bread together with other believers. Acts 2, 22 through 24, we see this beautiful picture of the early church breaking to bread together in their homes, praying with one another, um, selling their possessions and belongings, giving it to all those need. It says in verse 46, and day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with every people. Our physical breaking of bread together in the Lord's Supper in, um, with other believers in our home, it should call to mind. It should help us remember that he is the completely satisfying bread of life, a lasting covenant that is better. And because of his better bread and his better covenant and his better reminder we have a better Sabbath. Remember, he didn't come to make the bad good. He came to make the dead alive. He came to breathe life into us. Under the law in the tabernacle, there was a continual work. It was never complete. Sabbath after Sabbath, they did this. They had to replace the bread. And um, we see in Matthew 11, this very famous verse that we all know, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you, and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
if you continue reading on into Matthew 12, you see that those words are said in the context of Sabbath. And what he can just does in the verses after this is he redefines what Sabbath rest is. And a lot of us um, debate that. And so I want to show you one more thing that just absolutely blew my mind as I was studying this week. So there is a structure a literary device that we very often find in the Old Testament is called a chiasm. And so it is a structure of building. Um, so you'll see like the first line and the last line are, are the same um, idea or thought. And then it builds in. So you'll see like the second and second to last are the same. And they build in and they're different links. But the central point of a chiasm is always the main idea of that section. And so you can build into, and this is why, um, and I'm not smart enough to know all of this. I just, I listen to podcasts and I read. So <laughs> I don't want you to think that I'm super smart. Um, this is something I've just learned about in the last few years. And the first one I remember reading about is, um, the, is Genesis 1 itself is a chiasm. And so, um, Exodus 25 through 40 is a chiasm. All of our instruction and construction of the tabernacle is a chiasm. And if you move toward the central point of it, um, we will find this verse, Exodus 33, 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God desires to dwell in our midst because it is his presence going with us that gives us the rest that our souls so desperately need. And that verse in Exodus 31, 17, um, which is part of this chiasm, um, we read that verse, I read that verse a few minutes ago. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. As I was reading that, I was so struck by that word refreshed, because that is what rest is meant to do for us. The Sabbath is meant to be refreshing. But as I was digging, I discovered that the Hebrew word for, re for refreshed is only used in scripture three times. And two of those are in Exodus in reference to the Sabbath. Um, and it means to breathe or to refresh oneself. But this is what is so mind-blowing to me. Y'all ready? In both Exodus passages, it is used in a passive way, which means the action is being done to you, all right? So you're getting math lessons tonight, and you're getting grammar lessons tonight. Um, so it's in a passive voice or a passive tense. So what it means is not that you are refreshing oneself or that you are breathing, it means that you are being breathed on. You are being breathed on. Here's what it means. There is a difference between a Sabbath day where you take a breather and refresh yourself and a Sabbath day where you take a moment and allow the creator of this world to breathe the breath of life over you. Sabbath is not doing what relaxes you, catching up on Netflix or Disney Plus. It is not merely not working. Sorry for the double negative. This is a creation narrative. And so um, 
it is God breathes his life into Adam at creation, just as he did that, just as his breath went out over the dry bones in Ezekiel 37 and brought life into a pile of a massacre from a battle and, and breathed life in before them was a living army. Just as God's breath does that, when we take time on Sabbath to break bread, to remember who he is, to remember what he has done for us, we allow him to breathe the breath of life on us. It is a day of recreation. The covenant relationship that we get to experience because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. He does not bring us earthly satisfaction, but eternal sustainment. Aaron and the priests ate the bread of the presence together on the day of rest as a reminder of God's covenant with his holy people. We eat bread together as a reminder of the bread of life, the one who sustains us for eternity, giving us eternal life, who enacted a more perfect covenant that allows us to rest as God's holy people. If we finish reading through that John 6 passage, we see that in verse 66, after many of the disciples, the people who had been following Jesus, heard Jesus call himself the bread of life and what he was offering them, not bread for their stomachs, but bread that would sustain their life eternally. It says that many turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, do you want to go his way as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We get the choice. Will we follow Jesus, the one who has the words of eternal life? Will we take the time to come to his table to feast on his truth and to allow him to breathe the breath of life over us? Or will we walk away wanting something that the earth offers but will fade away. Let me ask you this, where else would you go? Because in him, we have a better bread that provides eternal sustainment. In him, we have a better covenant enacted on better promises. In him, we have better community with one another, with glad and generous hearts. In him, we have a better Sabbath, not one of ritual, but one that invites us to have communion and rest with the living creator, very present, trustworthy provider, covenant-keeping God. On the bronze altar, blood is spilled and sacrifice made to atone for and cover the cost of our sin. Jesus did this for us by spilling his blood on the cross. On the bronze basin, uh, the bronze basin reflects the stain of sin, showing the priests where to wash it off, to make them clean so that they could enter the holy place, the place of communion with God. Jesus does this for us by washing us and cleansing us through his word. The lampstand bathed the holy place in light. It stood as a tree of light, life, shattering the darkness, 
pointing us to the true light that would one day bring the light of life to his people because where God dwells, there is light. And the table of shoe bread invites us into a covenant relationship with our creator God. It is a place of rest and life and communion that is life-giving as God's holy people. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm so blown away by the detail and the deliberateness of every word that you have put in this holy book, Lord, that shows us who you are and how we walk with you, how you relate to us. And Lord, we are so undeserving, but yet you still bent down to us. You still provided the way through the blood of Jesus to have this communion with you. Lord, because you know that you dwelling with us, your presence going with us is where we find the rest our souls so desperately long for. Lord, I pray that we would be women who come to your table, who feast on your truth, who partake of your body and your blood, Lord, and that we remember, that we remember when we do that, that it is because of you that we are able to have this communion with you, Lord, that we would have community with one another around the word, Lord, around the truth. God, thank you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Y'all, there was so much this week and I didn't even go into the drink offering and all the symbolism there. I know that was a lot, but at the core, here's what I want you to take away. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. And when we enter into a covenant relationship with Him, we partake of communion with him and it's all made possible through the bread of life through the life and death and resurrection of jesus christ the breaking of bread together like aaron and his priests did together in the holy place is a celebration and a remembrance of the covenant that we have with him and it helps us remember his sabbath rest over us in him is all that we need. Let's let his breath of life bring the refreshments that our souls so desperately crave. Next week, we move closer to the Holy of Holies as we encounter the altar of incense and discover just how serious God is about his glory. I'll see you next week.